touch that dimension, nothing else will ever satisfy you, no matter what you do, what you get, where you go. If you ever break through and God reveals himself to you, and I mean profoundly impacts your life, you won't be the same again ever. Now, I'm not saying that I didn't do a lot of stupid stuff and tried to get out there, but I mean, it was so bad that when I was a, a young man uh, making my living at that time as a musician, I would have people walk up to me in nightclubs that I've never seen before and say, you don't belong here. There's something different about you. I'm, I'm serious. And I knew what they were talking about too. Because the moment they said it, I, I immediately flashed back to the age of six when I had an encounter with God. And... As a staff, that is our primary calling to help connect God and man together and facilitate that. The very word priest means bridge builder. We, we're supposed to be building a bridge from that world to this one or from this world to that one. Jesus is the high priest, the ultimate bridge builder. But then we as, as staff and as believers are supposed to be helping facilitate that divine connection and I mention that because right now, what needs to happen in our nation, everybody is complaining. You hear folk cussing government and complaining about this and that. And some don't like the president or don't like this issue or don't like what's going on overseas. And I mean, everybody's talking about all these things they don't like. And what I fear is that what's actually happening is that we're a few years behind Europe, and if we're not careful, we're, we're going to find ourselves in a place of need like Europe is. You go to buildings that seat thousands in Europe, church buildings, and when you walk in on a Sunday morning, maybe 25 people in some of those, those buildings. In Europe, that gave us the Reformation, that gave us people like Martin Luther and John Wesley and Spurgeon and some of the others. And the reason is, is there, there has to be an encounter with God every generation. Somebody said it this way, God has no grandchildren. He has sons and daughters, but no grandchildren. And it's been over a generation since America has had a divine encounter. And we have whole generations now of people that have not really had an encounter with God. Last Sunday night, it happened in this building. Not all of you were here, and I'm not here to chide you. I'm just telling you, you don't know what you missed if you weren't here. I saw God walk in at the end of that service and start doing things that were supernatural. That's all I'm going to say about it, and all I'm going to say is if you've got kids, you don't ever want them to, to grow up without having an encounter like what happened this past Sunday night because I'm telling you people get this idea that religion or just being a member of a church is what it's all about that and you know 10 bucks to buy you a cup of coffee at Starbucks you know it, 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 all of that religious stuff doesn't help you at the end of the day and as long as everything is going well in your life and they were talking about heaven on earth. That's why I mentioned this. As long as everything's going good in your life, you know how much it matters whether you've had a God encounter or not? Probably not a whole lot. But you know when you need it? 
when you go through sudden one of those sudden changes in your life that you weren't expecting and it shows up uninvited and you need God with a capital G-O-D. You don't want to at that time begin to ask, is God real? Does God answer prayer? You need all of that settled and resolved so that when you do find yourself in one of those circumstances, you can just go straight to the man, you know. And the Bible tells us that God is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him and God will show up in your life. I saw it happen last Sunday night. God have mercy. I think about it and the hair still stands up on the nape of my neck. And uh, that's all I'll say. I've come here to preach. Look at somebody and say, this is your year to build your dream. Would you do that? James 4, 14, for what is your life? One of the most important questions you will ever ask. I just told you a while ago that even though I had a, a, a God encounter at the age of six, I was raised in a little church, and it was tough and hard, and, and um, I, I'm going to just say it. They were mean at the church I was raised in. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> and a very small number because most people are not into... <laughs> masochism, <laughs> you know, going to church to get beat up, but that's pretty much what happened, and I, I thought that if I could live to get old enough to get away from that, I'd never go to church again, so I've already told you where life ended up carrying me because of my bad choices. Now, I won't tell you what turned me around right there is that verse. What is your life? As a young man in the music business with everything that goes with it, and you can fill in the blank, every vice imaginable. One day I woke up and looked in the mirror, and I asked myself, are you having fun? Because all this freedom and fun you think you're having is about to kill you. I was suicidal, depressed. I looked in the mirror and, and, and asked myself, is this what I want? At that moment is whenever I made up my mind things were going to change. I went to church, got saved, a revival meeting, special meetings they were holding, went back to school, spent most of my life in school. But that question right there is the reason I did. Until you can ask yourself that question, your life is probably not going to change. So for this year, we're asking ourselves the question, what is our life? And in a companion text to that, Jeremiah 24, 6 through 7, this is the promise that God has made to Israel. It's the promise he's made to me. It's the promise he's speaking to this church this year. So I'm going to read it this, this way. For I will set mine eyes on CT for good, and I will bring them into their promised land. And I will build them and not pull them down. And I will plant them and not pluck them up. And then I will give CT a heart to know me that I am the Lord. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. And they shall return to me with their whole heart. Somebody just say amen.
You really ought to pray that prayer every single day, but rather than put CT there, put your name there, put you there, use the personal pronoun, for God will set his eyes on me for good, and so forth. Now, in Revelation 12 and 11, the question becomes one of this as we study this, these texts in Jeremiah and also this text in James. Okay, I've asked the question, what is my life? Okay, I see the promise in Jeremiah. The question I have is this one. How do I get from where I'm at to there? Revelation 12 and 11, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Now this verse is important because implicit in this verse, though it is not explicitly stated, there is someone who's trying to oppose these very things I've just gotten through saying from Jeremiah. It's the him. They overcame him. Overcome means there was opposition that needed to be dealt with. How did they do it? Two key strategic components. Blood of the lamb and word of their testimony. And as I've been pointing out for the last couple of weeks, the Greek word there for testimony means evidence or a report that is given by a witness as in a judicial case. It is sworn testimony affirming to be the truth. Father, I pray that right now you will speak to us and let this word resonate in our hearts, especially with the subject matter that we're about to deal with now because every one of us are affected by it, I pray that somehow, rather than, than just communicating ideas and thoughts that are of an intellectual nature that therefore deal with, with supposed realities, that your word would come across with such forcefulness and conviction to be received by us, your people, that it is able to persuade us to allow what it claims to be true, to actually work its work in our hearts and in our lives so that we don't just walk out of here having heard a sermon and say that was a nice message or whatever but that rather we walk out of here changed and compelled to face the future with an awareness of new possibilities and potential I ask it in Jesus name and everybody said amen see it, say it, pray it, play it pay it rather Play it, stay it, then sanctify it. I'm talking today about, again, about saying it. The first part of this series that we're in, see it had to do with vision. Say it has to do with the practical components of how you begin to make your dream actually come together. And I want to talk today from the subject, conversations you need to have with yourself, part two. Amen. I dealt with the first part of this last week. And let me just simply begin today by saying that words have unbelievably and powerfully creative force within them. Words create. They do. My words, for example, if I describe a robin with a red breast on a wintry morning hopping around in your backyard, draw a picture for you, words contain the ability possess the ability to cause us to see things. They have a force, a, a creative force within them that actually goes to work within our minds drawing or describing or portraying something to us that enables us to see it. 
Science say, uh, scientists tell us, those who study the brain, that we do not think in terms of abstract words. For example, if I describe a fence, you do not see the word F-E-N-C-E. In your mind right now, you're actually seeing a fence, a picture of a fence, whether that is a chain link fence, whether it is a barbed wire fence, whether it is a picket fence, whether it is a split rail fence, depends upon probably the kind of fences you saw most often during your earlier informative years. But words have creative power. John 1 and 1 describes it this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, say it, was God. Now what is that saying? Another way to express this thought is that God and His Word are indivisible. It was God, it was with God, was God. And what you have here is an emphatic declaration that your word, God's word, cannot be separated from his person. And that is particularly of importance to Jewish, Orthodox Jewish people. When we wear our Bibles out, we just forget to take them home from church one day. Or we leave them at home and go get a new one. Or we do what I do. I've got all kind of Bibles on my iPad. And I enjoy reading from them. I've got a, I noticed them this morning, a stack of worn Bibles on the corner of my desk that I hardly ever pick up anymore because I've got all these different translations right here. And um, so they sit on my desk. For many of us, they sit on a shelf at home in a bookcase. Uh, that's not what happens when a Jewish Torah wears out. When the Jewish Torah gets worn and is no longer used, they actually conduct a ceremony for its burial, like it's a living person. The Word of God never dies, but the inherent spirit within this text is now being transferred to the new Torah, because they say God and His Word are indivisible, and they have such regard and respect for God's Word that they don't just leave it at church or leave it to collect dust on a book in a bookcase at home. They actually have a ceremony to recognize the passing of its usefulness from those who have been using it to the next Torah that is now being brought in to replace it. God and his word are indivisible. Listen up. You and your word are indivisible. This is why the word of God teaches against lying. Because when you tell things that are, that are false, guess what happens to you? You and your word, which are indivisible, bring about the end result that you yourself become marred with falsehood. It becomes a part of your character or the absence of character. John 1 and 14 went on to say, and the word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Your word also becomes flesh. That is, it becomes manifest, and you will see, you will behold, as will we. The result of what your word is that is spoken. 
And that word will manifest itself in the course of your life. And words have incredible power for good or for harm. And whether this is words you've spoken out loud, publicly, verbalized, or others have heard them, or words you're speaking to yourself, words have incredible power either for good or harm. And because of this creative force that I'm talking about, the right words create the right things. The wrong words create things you don't want to have to deal with. And the right words will help you create the life you want to live. Job said in Job 6 and 25 how forceful are right words. And we have said through the years something that isn't true. We've said things like this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Anybody that's in this room that's ever heard that statement or made it themselves know when they're saying it, it's not true. You can say that all day long. The truth of the matter is you get wounded by a stone or hit by some kind of a, 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 a stick or a club, or as painful as that may be, and it could result in hospitalization. Injuries could be so serious that they require surgery and leave a permanent scar and even permanent damage. But I will tell you this, words scar you more profoundly than a club ever will, than a stick ever will. Amen. Your words have creative force. You read in Genesis 1 and 1 in the Genesis account of creation this statement, and God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. That is one of the most hotly contested verses that exist in all of the Bible. If you've ever done any study in theology, you know that theologian, theologians are by no means in total agreement as to what that verse is actually saying. To begin with, the word us is not even in the original text. They didn't use that word. The Hebrew vocabulary at that time was rather limited. The Eng we make the mistake of thinking that their vocabulary was as, as extensive as ours. French is not even as extensive as English. Spanish isn't. English is the most extensive broad-based language there is in terms of the number of words that it possesses in its vocabulary. Somebody has said well over 2 million words now. And some other languages have as few as 50,000. And when you read that, what you really need to understand is that the reason it puts the word us is the translation, the original text used the word Elohim. Elohim said, make man. And what the word Elohim is actually a plural term. But it doesn't necessarily mean that there's more than one God. For we know that here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. So some theologians debate it from this perspective that God was speaking to himself in the sense of another part of the Godhead. And then others say, no, um, because this is the same word that God uses when he tells Moses, Moses, you will be a God to Pharaoh. He's saying, Moses, you will be Elohim to Pharaoh. Same plurality. There was only one Moses. And so it's been hotly contested 
through the years as to what God was really saying. The solution for some theologians is to say, well, God no doubt was speaking to angels because they were the only ones that existed at that time who were present. And somebody else says, yeah, that sounds good. But another theologian says this, and there are numerous of them that, that make this debate. We are talking, he says, from the perspective of time. God doesn't live in time. God lives in eternity. Clock never changes on the wall. And this is why God can make statements like the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. And you ask geologists and scientists how long the world has been here, and some of them will tell you it's been here millions of years. And yet Jesus, the Lamb, was only slain a little less than 2,000 years ago. How can the Scripture say he was slain from the foundation of the world? And the response to that by some theologians is God lives outside of time, not within time like we do. So we have a different framework or point of reference when we talk about events like this. And then when God is saying, let us make man in our image, that maybe it's a part of God speaking to himself within terms of an understanding of the Godhead. Or maybe what it is is God speaking to angels, but then again, maybe it's God speaking prophetically to the church. Because God who already lives in tomorrow before it gets here because there's no past or future with God. In eternity, those don't exist. And if you've studied any of the recent uh, studies about their discoveries in quantum physics, you now are hearing science say the very same thing. That the past and the present in terms of, of reality don't exist in quantum physics. It, I can't get into all of that. It, it, all I can say is it'll mess you up. That's, that's what it will do. Amen. Oh, I'm, I, I understand all that. I'd like to shake your hand because I'm trying to understand it. And, amen. Truth of the matter is God who lives in tomorrow before it ever gets here has already seen man fall before he ever created man. And so science, some theologians say that what God was doing was speaking prophetically to the church saying we let us my future church, I live outside of time, so I'm speaking to the church because in my mind I see it already now. It's the ever-present now. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And what God is actually saying is that we're going to reconstruct man from his fallen state. All I can tell you is that's powerful because when you read the book of Ephesians, you begin to read of what God's inheritance in the saints is. And there are those that make the argument that this is precisely what God, who never fails at anything he ever does, who never loses no matter how many innings the game may go, always wins before the sun sets. Amen. And that God is ultimately going to wrap this thing up by accomplishing everything he set out to accomplish from the start. And rub the devil's face in it because he's going to use the very ones that, that he tried to steal from God to make what God said was going to happen become a reality. Hmm. That blesses me because I love the fact that God likes to take those the devil was going to use to try to mess thing up, things up. I like the fact that God takes those and turns them around and makes those the very ones that build his kingdom. Amen. And so how, do, how does this happen? 
it really has to do with the power of the words we speak, doesn't it? And this is why we preach the gospel, God's spell, the good news. Why are we here to preach? Why didn't God choose some other methodology for saving man? It's because there is so much power in words that the right words are so forceful they literally can remake man in the image that he's supposed to be made into. You can't be saved without preaching. You can't be saved without the word being declared. Oh, I'm preaching already right now. The power of words words is incredible. And in fact, Proverbs goes on to tell us that the words you speak to yourself are more powerful than words other people speak to you. Conversations you have within your own heart. Listen to this, Proverbs 23 and 7. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. That word think right there, do you know what that word is in the Hebrew? It means gate. What you let in the gate, there's a gate in your mind. What you let in determines what you become. What it's really talking about is the conversations you have with yourself. Determine what your future is. Hello. You see, there is a gate. Nobody stands there operating that gate but you. It's amazing the choices and the decisions that God gives us to make on our own. Choose you this day whom you will serve. He doesn't violate our will or our sovereign right as a created individual to make up our own decisions. He doesn't want people who are robotic in their worship. He wants people who have made a conscious decision to make him their Lord, who have turned to him because of their own will, out of their own volition, and serve him because they have recognized he's superior to anything else that's out there on the market. This was their choice. And this is why in Revelation he says, Behold, I stand at the gate, the door, and I knock. You get to choose whether I come in or not. If you will open the door, I will come in. I'm making the point because I need you to understand before I go any further that who controls that gate is not the devil. It's not your mama or your daddy or your ex-husband or your ex-wife or anything else that might have messed up your life. You control the gate as a person thinks in his heart what he lets in the gate is how his life is going to be. Amen. And there is a reason that words are so powerful because words are a force for good and evil both. And that is simply because words are actually containers. They are containers. They they carry something. They contain spirit. The wrong words allow the wrong spirit to be carried in. And your conversations with yourself, you're not just thinking words, but your words actually communicate spirit. They contain spirit. You say, oh, pastor, are you serious? John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Words contain spirit. I need somebody to say amen. Hallelujah. That's why he said unto them, receive ye the Holy Ghost. And breathed on them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Words contain something. 
Your words contain something. The words you speak to yourself contain spirit as well. And if you're saying the wrong thing to yourself, you're letting the wrong spirit come in the gate. You're controlling it. You're the guy that's sitting there is the sentry. And here's what happens. As the years go by, you let enough of the wrong things come in and they, they, well, they begin to direct the outcome of your life because of this creative force that these words contain. Amen. And it's called neuralistic programming. That's actually the term for it. And the founder of research in this particular area, I don't want to bore you, was Ivan Petrovich Pavlov. And, and personally, this kind of stuff fascinates me. I mean, you, you, won't, you want to know how I spend a good afternoon reading a book? That's the kind of stuff I like to read right there. Because I'm working with people all the time that I'm trying to help get out of some circumstances and get positive direction for their life. Pavlov was a Russian physiologist and psychologist who created the theories of condition response and also stimulus theory. His famous experiment, the one for which he is best known, is where he rang a bell each day before feeding the dogs that he was using as subjects in his experiment. And it proved that things you experience can actually create feelings in you that are so deeply ingrained that your body and your mind respond to them as though they are real, even though they're not. Every day he would ring the bell just before he fed his dogs. And after a period of time, the dogs came, became so conditioned that at the ringing of the bell, they would begin to salivate and make the noises that dogs make when they're, they're hungry and you're putting food. And, and as they, they make all of these anxious noises like, uh, there's dinner, you know, get out of my way. Hey, man, hurry up, mama, and put it on the, on the, the plate on the, uh, the, uh, the dish down on the, on the ground or something like that. And they would begin to salivate. And so one day he didn't give them food. And he rang the bell and they started salivating and making all of these noises as though food was there, but it wasn't. And he proved that you can condition yourself to respond. Your body gets programmed. Your mind gets programmed. Your emotions, your feelings, your thoughts get programmed to respond a certain way when provided with a certain stimulus. And um, these were not ingrained feelings they were born with. They were not placed there genetically. They, they didn't come into the world with already possessing them. This was learned behavior from an outside stimulus. This response or the feeling that you automatic, automatically experience toward a certain thing, listen up, is called an anchor. There are positive anchors and there are negative anchors. Positive anchors produce good feelings and good memories. Like you hear you know, a song that is, you know, y'all know what I mean when I say your song? Your song between you and your wife and you just cut e eyes at each other. The, the moment it comes on, you, you're thinking the same thing, feeling the same warm fuzzies on the inside. That's a song they were playing when you fell in love with each other. Amen. You know what I'm talking about? 
you have been conditioned and there is an anchor that was created that is a positive anchor. And there are some other positive anchors, that many others that exist. And uh, for me, uh, the smell of gumbo is a positive anchor in my life. It produces a conditioned response. Amen. There are also negative anchors that are, do the opposite. They cause feelings and responses that are not pleasant. And even though, are you listening, it might not be a real situation. Uh, you're not hearing that. There might not be any food placed in the bowl, but the bell was ringing and you started salivating anyway. Even though what you're fearing might not even happen, you're reacting as though it's just as real. You hear what I'm talking about? You're going through all of the heightened emotions. You're going through all of the, the spikes in blood pressure and the accelerated heart rate and, and, and the negative thoughts and everything else. Think of it like this. Uh, when I tell you that anchors can be both good and bad, what is the function of an anchor? An anchor holds you in one place. Amen. Now, as with, with I've already described these, the, the understanding of these other things being stimulus, that can be good or bad in your life. For example, an anchor can be a very good thing if the current is moving very rapidly in the wrong direction and faster than you can keep your boat on track to the right place. It's pulling you backward. You know what you do? Drop an anchor over the side of your boat. And then no matter how strong the current comes, you just sit there with your arms folded and say, I can wait this out. And you need to realize that in the course of your life, there are some forces that want to pull you in the wrong direction. Amen. There are even so-called friends who want to pull you in the wrong direction. Am I talking to anybody right now? Even family members will pull you in the wrong direction. Life can conspire against you. And the enemy sends things to happen in the course of your life designed to make you lose ground. But that's where the anchor of the word of God comes in. And uh, I love the old song we used to sing. It's been years since I've heard it. But every once in a while, I'll just hum it to myself. Though all hell assail me, I shall not be moved. He will never fail me. I shall not be moved. Just like a tree planted by the waters, I shall not be moved. You see, when you get enough word inside of you, it doesn't matter what the devil pitches your direction. It doesn't change who you are or where you're at. Amen. The temptation to embezzle will not overwhelm you because you got word inside of you and you've got character inside of you. And, and there could be a circumstance that could threaten your marriage and temptation arise, but you don't even pay that any attention because you've got something built inside of you. You're founded on the rock and not on the sand that's shifting and moving. You've got an anchor and the writer described it as the anchor that is both sure and steadfast. Nothing shakes you. What I need you to know is there's a place in God where the enemy can bark all he wants to, but he can't move you out of God's hand. And somebody in the building needs to say amen right now. He can cause you all kind of trouble in your life, but you just keep on smiling because you've got an anchor 
You know what I'm talking about? You've got an anchor. Let him take your job. You've got an anchor. Let him, let him take your health. You've got an anchor. And you just go ahead and keep smiling. I'll be back, devil. If that's the best you can do, you're going to have to do better than that and get up earlier in the morning because I'm not going anywhere. My anchor is both sure and steadfast. And Amen. But an anchor can also be very bad, and they, they hold you in one place when you need to be moving forward. And it is to this respect that I address my remarks, to this regard that I've, I've come to make my remarks today because I, I'm talking to people that are trying to move forward. And how many of you felt like there's just something holding you back and it's not letting you go? And I mean, it's like, like you, you've got the floor, the accelerator pressed down on the floor, but somebody's wrapped a chain around the bottom of your frame and got it tied to a light pole somewhere. And all you're doing is smoking rubber and leaving black streets on the pavement. But I'm here today to tell you, you can break bad anchors in your life and, and you can get rid of some anchors that are holding you back. You can be everything you were meant to be. And there have been many studies that have been done in this particular field. I think, for example, everybody's heard about the lid. What's this? This is how you program fleas. Put that up there if you would. Amen. Training fleas, Training fleas requires a glass jar with a lid. The fleas are placed inside the jar and the lid is then sealed. They are left undisturbed for three days. Then, when the jar is opened, the fleas will not jump out. In fact, the fleas will never jump higher than the level set by the lid. Their behavior is now set for the rest of their lives. And, when these fleas reproduce, their offspring will automatically follow their example. Did you hear that? How many of us have bumped up against a lid most of our adult lives? A lid financially that is imposed where you can't seem to get a job to make any more than you're making. And you were designed to, to represent God. You are most like God and therefore bring him the most glory when everything in your life best reflects his image. And one thing God is is he is self-sufficient. God has no lack. He has no need. God wants your life to be sufficient also. I'm preaching better than some of you are responding right now. Amen. And when you are so needy that everybody that looks at you sees need dripping out of every pore, you're not reflecting the image of God. Somebody put a lid on you, and you know what happened? You've accepted that. What I need you to understand is when you got born again, Jesus moved the lid. Amen. Now that quart-sized jar that you saw a while ago, how, how tall is that? Maybe 8, 10 inches tall? And fleas can easily jump in excess of two feet. But after three days of being conditioned, hitting themselves against the lid, they become convinced they can't do that anymore. You can take them out of the jar like they did and set them down, and they will still only jump as high as that lid, even though the lid isn't present. But what was really compelling to me 
was when they began to have offspring, their offspring come into this world believing that mama and daddy's lid is my lid too. I'm talking to you right now. I'm telling somebody in this building that's not what the message of Jesus Christ is about. It's about whom the Son sets free is free indeed. He wants to move somebody's lid. Can I hear somebody in the building say amen? What happened is the fleas became programmed, just like Pavlov's dogs became programmed, and just like some of us have become programmed, and like Boudreaux and Thibodeau. You knew that was coming. Because they were hard at work for the public utilities works department at their city. And Boudreaux would dig a hole two feet deep and Thibodeau would come right behind him and fill it up. And a guy across the street was watching them as they did this in the medium, the, the strip between the two sides of the avenue. He watched all day from his desk and through the window. They'd dig a hole two feet deep. Boudreaux would, Thibodeau come fill it up. And the guy finally got off work. And as he was getting off work and going outside to his car, he noticed Thibodeau and Boudreaux were putting up their tools. And so he walked over and he said, guys, I appreciate how hard y'all have worked all day long. You, sir, dig a hole, and you, sir, fill it up. But what gives? What's the purpose of that? And Thibodeau said, well, Trahan was supposed to be with, here, with us here this morning planting trees, but he got sick and couldn't come in today. All I know to do is dig my hole. All Boudreaux or Thibodeau knows to do is fill it back up. And we're going to do that whether the middle guy is here to plant the tree or not. Do you get my point? People get locked into to useless, meaningless cycles, going to church but not going anywhere, working a job but not getting ahead, going to university but not doing anything with it because somebody put a lid over you. And what you need to realize is you are powerful beyond belief. You are made in the image of Almighty God. Amen. But you've been programmed wrong. None of us realize as I'm getting ready to close just how powerful we actually are. We truly are earthly representatives of a heavenly God. Only we don't believe it because the lid has been there too long. Science tells us that most of us will never use over 10% of our mental or intellectual capacity. Even a genius on the level of, say, an Einstein or a Stephen Hawkins is believed to use at most 30% of their mental capacity. Science can take the brain of a genius and the brain of someone that is mentally incompetent and cannot in a laboratory under a microscope discern the difference between the two. I think that every once in a while, though, something happens that shocks us to make us realize how powerful we can be if the lid is moved out of the way. For example, Jason Padgett, P-A-D-G-E-T-T, one of 100 certified savants that they have found around the world. That's an interesting study. Jason was absolutely normal in every regard until one night leaving a place he was 
attacked by muggers who severely beat him around the head and kicked him and struck a blow to the back of his head. Some people who are severely beaten in this way suffer brain damage and for the rest of their lives they suffer physical impairment. The exact opposite of that happened to normal Jason Paget. From the moment he awakened from the coma that he was placed in, there was something that had activated and brought to life the area of his brain that is, where, where, that is devoted to mathematical sciences. He began to see geometric p- patterns in everything from the moment he came to that are called fractals. If you know anything about fractals, you know this is a complicated area of mathematics. He draws them by hand. Everything he sees from a platform to a tree to a car, he sees it in the form of fractals. And he has become what is certified as a genuine savant. What happened to him? Because it was there all the time. Just something woke it up. One of the most fascinating stories that I've ever encountered in my life is the story of Leslie Lemke. Leslie was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, prematurely. And he, at birth, he was diagnosed with glaucoma, cerebral palsy, and brain damage. His birth mother gave him up. The doctors literally had to remove his eyes because of the pressure caused by the glaucoma. And after some period of time, they approached a nurse named May Lemke, who really had a heart of compassion for, for uh, children that were, that were handicapped in some kind of way. And they asked her to take care of, of, of little Leslie, and she did. She ended up adopting him, and to feed him, May had to push food down his throat. It was a year before he could even chew food on his own. It took seven years of constant care before Leslie showed any progress. And during this time, he made not one sound, no movement at all, and showed no emotion at all. He was 12 before he first learned to stand and was 15 before he learned to walk. And then one night when Leslie was 16, May and her husband had gone to bed earlier and it was late and they woke up and heard the sound of music coming from the sitting room and they thought they had left the TV on. And let me just show you the story if you would. Put it up there please. Another thing May did right was to buy Leslie a musical instrument. It was a, a second-hand piano, and I put it in there, and each night I would go in and ping, ping, like that, you know. Just me, I'd be doing that. I wasn't playing no music at all, just going up and down like that. And he was around 16 years old. He couldn't talk or walk or anything. And uh, we went to bed, and uh, we heard music. I couldn't believe it. And I said to Joe, I said, did you leave television on? And he said, no. And I got up, you know, thinking I was going to turn off some music. And that boy had got out of that bed. How he did it, I don't know. And he was playing that piano. How and why Leslie could suddenly play a piano concerto that he had only heard is beyond explanation. I said, oh, thank you, dear God, that you've remembered to do something for Leslie. James, do you know how to play Tchaikovsky's Piano Concerto Number 1? You don't think so? 
Anybody here? Here's a piano. This boy without eyes, he couldn't even see the piano, much less the keys on the piano, had heard Tchaikovsky's concerto number one one time on TV, got up in the night by himself, went to the piano and started playing it. That was him playing the piano in the background that you could hear. A boy who couldn't talk, a boy who couldn't walk, a boy who had no emotion, who was brain damaged, and yet there was a part of his brain that was so alive that he could do, after hearing one time, what others require years of lessons to be able to accomplish. James is one of the best pianists you'll ever hear in your life. But even he doesn't perhaps want to tackle that kind of formidable project without some opportunity to practice. Am I right? Amen. I should have called you and had you learn that this week. (laughs) What I should have done so you could see what I'm talking about. What happened? It was there all the time. And even blind and even brain damaged, there's something up there. You don't know what you got on the inside. You don't know who you can become, but because of this lid that we grow up with, we don't ever dare to think of ourselves as being great or powerful, and this is what is amazing. I talk to you about conversations you have with yourself. You sit at the gate. Thoughts are nothing more than intimate conversations you're holding within your own heart with yourself. And if you want to change your life, you want to build your dream, change the way you communicate with yourself. Science used to believe that once programming had been laid down, you couldn't change it, that Pavlov's dogs would always respond to the ringing of a bell in the same way. But now they believe that if you work at it and you resist the impulse to get back in the old groove and just do what comes naturally and easy, what you've been trained and programmed to do, that if you really buck that and you start thinking the different kind of thoughts necessary to be able to produce change, instead of I'm dumb or I'll never make over you know, 50,000 a year or I'll never be able to impact anybody or speak before a crowd or teach a class. I'll never be able to master sports if, or a piano. If you change the way you talk to yourself that you can lay down some new programming and, and that's what I'm here to tell you today. Doing the same thing we've always done will only produce what we've always had. But the power of the gospel is God came to help you change the way you look at life. Amen. Oh, somebody in the building say hallelujah. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. That's what the writer says in the book of Romans. And I conclude with these remarks that you ought to make to yourself every day. Conversations you need to have. Create a new CD for yourself, a new CD-ROM. Amen. Throw the old one away with all of its bad programming, with all of its lids. You're not helping yourself when you start talking about, yeah, yeah, he thinks he's something. He's driving that nice car and all of that. All that is is the fox 
bitter because he can't reach sour grapes. We know that. You don't think people see through all of that? Instead of complaining about the grapes being sour, why don't you go get your own grapes? Amen. Am I, am I being too plain for anybody? Am I talking to, oh, instead of life is so unfair. No, it's not. Get out there and make something of your life. Remove the lid. Amen. Success is not determined by where you go. It's what you had to go through to get to where you go. And if you've got some stuff to overcome, just swear your shoulders back and start talking to yourself in a different way. Last Sunday, I gave you the first one. I'll give you five more after I repeat the, the first one again. This is, this is the kind of conversation you need to have with yourself. I am special. I am a creation of God. He made me and placed me in this world for a purpose. I was born to succeed. God doesn't make junk or create failures. Look yourself in the eye every day in the mirror. And you're going to feel something on the inside. Reject that when you first try to do this. And say, who do you think you are anyway? You know better than that. And you know what you do? Keep on saying it. Because each one of these contains spirits. Every one of these is based upon principles that I have found in the Word of God, verses from the Bible. And if you speak God's Word, it contains spirit and it contains life. The second one is you, you need to look in the mirror and declare this. God loves me more than words can express. And he sees the value that he placed inside of me. Even when others fail to recognize who I am, I am still who God created me to be. Somebody in the building say, I am who God made me to be. You don't see it, that's your problem. Amen. But God still sees what he's put in me. Number three, I am a child of God. I am made in his image and in his likeness. And I love God with all of my being. Say it out loud. I am a child of God. I am made in his image and likeness. And I love God with all of my being. Amen. Number four, say this out loud. I have a destiny. And there is a reason for me being on this planet. I am in the right place and this is my time. I will fulfill my assignment. Not next year. This is my time right now. Not six months from now. It's my time right now. Say this out loud. Number five, even though I have made mistakes, even when I have failed, and even when I have sinned, I still have value to God. And I have not lost my purpose for being created. These are temporary setbacks, and I hate the enemy who deceived me and caused me to waste even one day of my valuable life. Yes, I've messed up. So have you. Nobody exists who hasn't. But you know what? I'm not going to stay there because you're not a failure if, you're a fa if you fail. You're a failure if you continue to live there. That's, that's when you become a failure. Get up from there. The Bible said a good man falls seven times. Get up. Get up. Get up. Don't lay there and wallow in self-misery. And finally, number six, 
I will even the score and make the enemy regret that he ever tried to harm me by living an even more fulfilling life than I would have before. My tomorrows are going to be more powerful and glorious than anyone can possibly imagine. You just tell him, devil, you done messed up now. Because I'm going to show you. It's payback time, buddy. It's time for a rematch. You think I've tucked my tail between my legs and, and slunk off the stage. Oh, no. I'm here again. I learned something about who you are. And you're going to regret the day you ever mess with my life. Stand with me across the building. Conversations you need to have with yourself that can transform who you are. Some of you need to get rid of some negative programming. Come and gather with me quickly and I'm closing. I'm gonna have to slip out, Pastor Donnie. Come and get ready to take this service and close this altar call for me. Negative programming. Stuck. Anybody stuck? I'm gonna teach that before this year is over. I'm gonna teach a series, stuck. Anybody stuck? You're tired of being stuck? Get unstuck. 